Welcome to the Open House Podcast. Conversations exploring life, faith and hope with Stephen O'Doherty. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks very much for having me. Well, uh, trade, mining, um, getting productivity out of the natural environment, that is the history of human civilizations moving around the world. But the gold rushes were a particular moment in time. Why did it all happen there in the 1850s? Yeah, look, it's a great question. I mean, as you say, um, gold has throughout human history been this this treasured, um, treasured precious mineral. You know, we can go right back to say ancient Egypt and find evidence of people doing remarkable things in the in the hunt for gold. But starting with California in 1848, 170 years ago. We have this remarkable transformation to the gold rushes of the second half of the 19th century. Uh, you know, they trigger all kinds of movements on a scale that's unprecedented in history before. So, if, so if you think of the middle of the 19th century, if you're you're a powerful uh, leader, for instance, in a certain part of the world, you have great difficulty gathering and sending an army of say 30,000 men to fight a battle. And yet, after 1848 in California, what we get is this incredible power of the gold rushes to make approximately you know. 100,000 people kind of appear almost spontaneously in these different parts of the world um, in their search for riches. And so the, the gold rushes happen at this moment when the world is becoming increasingly connected. We're starting to get the technologies that enable the world to become increasingly connected. And then all of a sudden you have this massive force of gold which pulls people into these different parts of the globe. And do they have gold fever? Is that really the driving? Is it greed that essentially drives this? If you're trying to understand this phenomenon of all these people rushing for gold, one of the easiest things to reach for in terms of understanding it is disease. Uh, you know, both because people seem to be fevered and frenzied in, in doing what they're doing, but, but also because, like disease, there's a certain amount of luck involved in gold mining. You know, whether, whether, you, whether your fortune is good or whether your fortune is bad depends, in a sense, on a game of chance. Um, and so in the 19th century, people tend to think and look at disease and gold mining. Um, you know, they saw that parallel and so reached for the, the, the metaphor of fever. Very interesting. And of course, well, it's more than just chance, although that's involved, but there's great skill. So the mining technologies that developed during that time uh, and after that time are quite interesting. And I do notice that uh, a lot of gold mines now that have, you know, haven't been productive, as new techniques develop, they go back and they, they manage to get a, another yield out of it. Yeah, and I mean, you're right. It's a, the gold rushes inspire sort of remarkable innovation across a range of fields. So there's not only the need to get to the gold fields, there's the need to supply them and to provide the miners access. But then, as you say, this evolution in the technical capacities to get gold out of the earth. So, you know, in the early days of gold rushes and, and in the romantic uh, era, if you like, what's, what historians sometimes call the open phase, hmm. you know, we have that idea of someone turning up with a pick and a pan um, and being able to swish some gold around in their mm -hmm. pan and, and come away with their fortune. Yeah, exactly. And that, that romantic idea of the prospector is, I think, what, what sticks in our mind when we think of the gold fields. But, but very quickly, of course, what happens is, um, you know, as contemporaries often said, to get gold, you need gold. And so gold mining becomes a very um, expensive, capital-intensive, technologically uh, complicated process. And mining uh, you know, engineers, by the end of the 19th century, are, are travelling right around the world sharing their expert knowledge. Uh, specialist schools are popping up in places like the Ballarat School of Mines, for instance, here in Victoria. Kalgoorlie in Western Australia plays host to, to Herbert Hoover, of course, goes on to become the American president, but he arrives in WA um, as a young mining engineer there, there to bring his expertise and knowledge to extracting the precious mineral, mineral from these very wow. difficult 
environments. Well, now let's talk about the migration aspect of it. And as you've said, it has been, well, you, you've reframed it as the start of or, or a great, uh, a flourishing of globalization around the world. My great grandfather came here. So our family, uh, on one side of my family, we arrived here because he was a mining engineer. Yeah, I mean, I th- what I find really fascinating about that period is, as you say, and, and your family history is a, is a really nice, I think, reflection on this, is that the gold rushes at this moment, that you know, in, in Europe and, and in China and in various parts of the world, you have a series of push factors. You know, it's a very difficult time to make ends meet if you're, you know, if you're in Ireland, for obviously you've had the famine, you've had various other traumas. If you're in China, you're dealing with the Taiping Rebellion and, and domestic destabilisation. You know, it's a very difficult time. Um, and so there's these various push factors that encourage people to leave, you know, just as the news of the gold is coming in. And so what you have on these gold fields, you have these remarkable melting pots which develop. I mean, in terms of the proportions, the, the majority of the people who come to the Australian gold fields, for instance, are from the British Isles. But that doesn't take away from the fact that when people come from Northern Europe, for instance, they find themselves in communities which are much more diverse than they've experienced before. So, for instance, if you were to show up on the um, in, in colonial Victoria during the gold rush, you know, you arrive in a situation where maybe one in five men is from China, which is pretty remarkable if you think of uh, you know our, our sort of memory of how we understand the gold rushes. And um, you know Melbourne and San Francisco, for instance, if you wanted to go to a city, a Western city where you could see a very large Chinese community living in the city, there was no better place than than San Francisco or Melbourne. And so, so when contemporary writers were trying to understand the coming together of people from from different parts of the world, you know, gold rush cities and the communities that gold rushes developed um, were particularly valuable. Uh, Charles Dickens, for instance, um, you know, if you think of one of the great writers of the time, um, really is fascinated by Australia in this period. And one of the questions he he likes to focus on is is the presence of the Chinese and and what this means for you know what if by visiting country Victoria, what can that tell us about how the history of the world is changing? Wow. Ben Mountford is with us, and he's one of the authors, co-author, aren't you, I think, of... Co-editor, Steve. So this one right. is, a, is a collection of essays from... Really what we did, we, we, we had a series of people who were experts in gold rushes in their part of the world um, and threw them all into a room to, to find out what we could teach each other about gold <laughs> rushes and, and the history of the world. All right, well, the result of that is A Global History of Gold Rushes and uh, Ben is uh, a lecturer at Australian Catholic University in Victoria. Now... Let's let's go to uh, the Eureka Stockade then, because you get to this moment in 1854, a rebellion in the goldfields of Ballarat, and so with this cultural melting pot is a political melting pot, and then of course uh, there's what amounts to, I don't know, I've heard people refer to it as a capital strike. So all the miners, those that were doing the productive work of mine, mining, said we we refuse to do anything more, we're just not going to obey your laws, we're going to kick up a stink about the fact that we're over-regulated, and um, rather than being seen as the, the sort of great workers' rebellion, I don't know, what, what, what's your view of that? Was it in fact, this was it a capital strike? Yeah, I mean, there's this really, I think with Eureka, one of the interesting things is to think about the way in which many of these people, as we've said, um, have arrived in Australia with this idea of, of building a new kind of society. Mm. You know, even even if their idea is only to come and, and get the gold and go home, um, when they arrive in Australia, there is this very strong sense that this is going to be a society distinct 
from from the the pressures and tyrannies that they've known at home. Um, and a very important part of that, of course, is the presence of the Americans who um, arrive in Victoria. We have, to give you a sense of the numbers, maybe 10,000 to 11,000 people from the Australian colonies go to California from 1849. Wow. The, the news arrives in Australia actually at the end of 1848. So mm. the, the gold had been found in January 1848. The news gets here just before Christmas. And so people in Sydney start loading up and heading across the Pacific for California. And so there are about 10,000 to 11,000 people from the Australian colonies in California who experienced that way of life. It wasn't always pleasant, as we can talk about a bit, if you like, later. <laughs> but then when the flip side happens and gold is found back here in New South Wales and Victoria, about 10,000 Americans cross the Pacific the other way. And they arrive, of course, with very particular ideas about democracy, freedom, um, the perils of, of British tyranny, and so on. Um, and so the licence fee, I think, is really interesting. Um, I, you know, I, I don't sort of understand it at, as much as being a sort of working class uh, revolt is as much about being, um, as you say, a concern about the, the, the impingement of liberties that are being mm. um, forced by the government. And what you have is this really interesting disconnect, I think, between the miners who, who see themselves as at the vanguard of this new type of society they're trying to build and the British officials who, who you know, in many cases are um, used to dealing with much less uh, democracy at home in the, in the first instance, but um, in the case of someone like Governor Hotham, you know, has come from a from a naval background um, where you know discipline and authority are, are the way in which he understands the world, and so you have this kind of clash between these two visions that eventually leads to Eureka, and I think you know the fact that. Um, of course, the rebels are pardoned, um, says something about uh, you know the way in which the officials had come out of step with, yes. it, with the idea and, of And Peter Lawler ends time. up being a member of parliament when... when he does uh, indeed, yes. So, uh, of course, Peter Lawler famously uh, was injured in the battle and lost an arm, yes. um, and, uh, but of course goes on to become a parliamentarian and a great um, you know, venerated hero of Victorian history. So, so the fact that these rebels are not hounded out um, you know, suggests that the social attitude here had moved on to something quite different by that time. And the Eureka Stockade um, also has heavy involvement of the Catholic Church, it does, yeah, yeah. The um, particularly a lot of the the Irish community in Ballarat, obviously, um, uh, had been involved in the, the the Ballarat Reform League and the the emergence of the resistance uh, towards the government. And that, naturally, of course, there's a strong um, antipathy amongst many of the Irish migrants against what they see as British tyranny mm. here in Australia. And so, the, so the Irish dimension is very important. Um, you also have uh, important communities from elsewhere. You have a, one of the great characters of Eureka, the Italian revolutionary uh, Raphael Carbone, who um, who leaves, has left behind a, a sort of one of the iconic accounts of the stockade. Uh, you have the American involvement, which um, whenever I'm working in the United States or giving a talk to Americans, they're, they're absolutely blown away by the idea that the first person tried for treason at Eureka is actually an African-American man yeah. named John Joseph. And you know, if you needed a, a snapshot of, of Eureka as a global moment, uh, you know, the idea of an African-American man being the first one in the dock for treason, um, you know, I think really underlines that. So Eureka has everything, and it's oh well, it's worth a, a long interview in its own right on one occasion. But um, but for now, let's move on and just glance at it in passing. I want to ask you, Ben, about the Indigenous people, because 
as so many other things were stolen from the original custodians, owners of the land, gold, of course, they knew where the gold was. They would find the nuggets. Was was gold significant in Aboriginal culture? Yeah, it's a great question, Stephen. There's been a lot of work in recent years done on recovering Indigenous perspectives on the gold fields. For, for a long time, if you read histories of the Australian gold rushes, uh, the Indigenous community was in many ways absent from this history. Um, and what we know, there's been a lot of revisionist work done in recent years, um, both by Indigenous communities, but also by historians like my former colleague Fred Carr at Federation oh, University, yeah. um, looking at uh, the continuing presence of Indigenous people on the gold fields and also the importance of Indigenous knowledge, as you, as you say, about where the gold was. Uh, Indigenous Australians didn't place uh, a kind of monetary value on the gold in the way that Westerners did, um, but they certainly knew where it was. And once they realised that these newcomers uh, were interested in finding the gold, um, they proved very important in the process. Uh, we also know, you know that Indigenous people were involved in trading on the gold fields. Um, you know, we have records of corroborees taking place. Uh, one of my colleagues who works in the United States actually um, tells the fascinating story of American miners sleeping under kangaroo skin rugs um, and so we, that's the only detail we have but you know that we certainly know that indigenous people were trading things like possum skin rugs with the white miners um, and and uh, a handful of indigenous miners also went to California so so the, the history of indigenous uh, contributions on the gold fields is, is really important and something that we're still I think working to, to fully understand but the flip side of that of course is the the great economic um, and environmental damage that the gold mines do um, to, to traditional ways of life in the gold fields. The, the Jajawarung in central Victoria still refer to the gold fields today as upside-down country. And the, the estimates of the, of the miners basically removed about a metre of topsoil off the land on average uh, across Victoria. So if you think of the, the damage, for instance, that does to the Indigenous kitchen, um, you know, the, the gold rushes, as, as well as being this force which creates great development and growth, can also be a force of destruction and environmental damage. And let alone the rather awkward, embarrassing problem of whose gold was it anyway? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that question of... Um, I mean, miners who'd come from, from California, for instance, uh, Native Americans had been working in the gold mining industry in California, but there, uh, as a lot of recent research has shown, that the gold rush really um, proved devastating to many indigenous communities in California. The, the question then of, of who owned the minerals, uh, in California, the gold is mainly found on land belonging to the United States, but essentially the American government lacks the capacity to tax the miners. Um, California had just been taken from Mexico, and so the American government essentially doesn't have the means to, to have something like a license fee mm. in the way that we have in Australia. In Australia, the and across the British Empire, the gold and silver, in theory, are the property of the Crown. Um, and so the idea of the license fee... Uh, you know, involves uh, miners buying the right to obtain that gold on their own behalf. But as you, as you say, because of Tyrannulius in Australia, mm. um, any any sort of indigenous um, ownership of the of the gold was not something that the colonial authorities were considering at the time. Yes, just worth thinking about. Well, oh, that sounds like a fantastic collection of essays. Thank you for putting that together. But thank you especially for speaking with us on Open House. My pleasure, Stephen. Thank you for the conversation. Discover more Open House podcasts at openhousecommunity.com.au.